We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real Steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The MLS fan is constantly being told that the league they follow doesn't matter. It isn't good enough. Or it simply isn't real soccer. I will readily admit that MLS is far from perfect. But most of the time, the MLS fan is one of the most educated, intelligent, and well-rounded fans in the world, simply out of necessity and the reality of the unique American soccer culture. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the strange and wonderful animal that is the MLS fan. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering our questions in our Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you this week, Mr. Mossy? I am good. I am wearing a PSG jersey because we're going to be talking about them see that. later in the podcast. I thought about... Uh, wearing the Mich- Michigan football jersey to antagonize you again. Uh, we could discuss uh, <laughs> Jim Harbaugh challenging a call uh, with three minutes left in a 42 nothing game. Uh, I'm not sure if you caught that over the weekend. Uh, and you, uh, so the outsiders and the, uh, the non-Wolverines would say that that is Bush League and that is uh, uh, you know, just cruel and unusual punishment and you've got to take your foot off the accelerator. And the Wolverines, the true Wolverine fans would say, no, you play the game and it's not their problem who the opponent is and you score points because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Correct. Uh, now, I thought about bringing up making a murder in the intro, but I've been told to shy away from that. We'll save that for the end, perhaps. I do want to mention one thing. Uh, last week, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. You did? Uh, you yes, did. there was a screening of it uh, at the Fox lot. It's, it's made a ridiculous amount of money so far. I did not know anything about Queen or Freddie Mercury, so uh, I quite enjoyed it, although it's gotten mixed reviews. People who do know a lot about the band say it's not all that revealing. It's just kind of very superficial look at It is not there. made necessarily for someone like me. It is certainly made for someone like you, and yet I will still go. And so either way, they're getting my money. But you have to bring as many people into the tent as possible. And while Queen is certainly a huge band with incredible influence like, like you, they recognized that they had to make it accessible to people that maybe 
like you had never really listened to Queen, uh, to Queen, and I think that they did that, uh, and that's why it is this this event and this the popularity and the amount of money that's generated. Were you a big Queen fan? Uh, I was not a huge Queen fan, but I can I can talk about Queen, and, and I recognize the the incredible impact that they had. And as far and for my money, apart from maybe uh, an Axl Rose, and I would even put him ahead. I would put Freddie Mercury as the um, the best frontman. Uh, oh, there's David Lee Roth too, but I would still put Freddie Mercury in terms of the showmanship, but also his ability to sing and n- not easy stuff that he sang. If you if you go and watch the Live Aid performance, but also uh, there's wonderful full concerts, and he was just an amazing musician, an amazing singer, and then an, uh, also an, uh, an entertainer. He was the entire package, and that's why his life on stage and his life off stage were made into this movie. Do you think of Under Pressure as more of a Queen song or a David Bowie song? I look at it as a Queen song. Yeah, I look at it as a Queen song. There you go. All right. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I, I have yet to see it, so I will see it. Uh, as you mentioned, you've been told not to talk about making of a murder and um, uh, for reasons that will... Uh, no, we'll talk about it at the end of the podcast, but uh, Alex Dowder, producer, didn't feel like it's a good sort of intro topic. Right. Well, you know what? It's good for you to recognize and respect and follow the wishes of your bosses. He said he read an article about what makes a good podcast. So he's doing his research. So we're, uh, okay. Are we doing anything right? (laughs) Okay, good. He's giving (laughs) us the thumbs up for at least for a little bit. All right. Should we stop talking about this and talk about some soccer? Yeah. All right. Let's light this candle. As you know, each and every week we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week it goes something like this. The MLS fan is a strange and wonderful animal. The MLS fan is battle-hardened from years of defending an allegiance to something that seems to invite an exorbitant amount of criticism, ridicule, and even anger. The MLS fan is constantly being told that the league they follow doesn't matter, it isn't good enough, or it simply isn't real soccer. The MLS fan's integrity is questioned. Their understanding of the game is questioned. Even their motives are questioned. The single entity structure the spring to winter season, the lack of promotion relegation, the salary and roster restrictions, playing through international breaks, the synthetic surfaces, the playoffs, TV ratings, etc. All are evergreen and fair fodder for critics. Now, am I biased when it comes to Major League Soccer? You bet. I've been here since the beginning. I played in MLS. I worked in MLS. I broadcast MLS. It will always hold a special place in my heart. But I will readily admit that MLS is far from perfect. There are legitimate and fair criticisms to be made of what happens on and off the field. Sometimes, as MLS fans, we're overly sensitive to criticism. Sometimes our protectionism blinds us to seeing or admitting real problems. But that is just sometimes. Most of the time, the MLS fan is one of the most educated, intelligent, and well-rounded fans in the world simply out of necessity and the reality of the unique American soccer culture. The MLS fan isn't isolationist and often includes other leagues as part of their diverse soccer palette. The great Bonnie Raitt once sang, I can't make you love me if you don't. Well, I can't force someone to like MLS. But to those who do, you've certainly taken the road less traveled. And while it remains to be seen if it will make all the difference, I think in the end, you won't regret the trip. All right, that is my uh, State of the Union for this week. Mossy, thoughts? Let me ask you a question sure. that I've been grappling with. Do you think the quality of play in MLS today 
is like night and day better than when it first started in 1996? Or is that something that people convince themselves of? But if I pulled out a tape of the best teams from 1996, it actually wouldn't be that big of a difference. I think that it has improved. I think some of the depth of teams has improved. But I do recognize and will readily admit that what is around the game has dramatically and drastically improved. So the soccer-specific stadiums, the the supporters' culture that now is multi-generational, um, the different places that we've gone, the way, a, obviously, Atlanta in a more recent times, but, all, but Portland and Seattle, all that kind of stuff, that affects how you view it in the same way that how you taste a wine or eat food is affected by the environment that you're in, all that, all that kind of stuff. And I think that has dramatically improved. But I do feel that the quality on the field, and I think it's logical given the amount of money that has been spent or the increase in money that is uh, that is being spent. So if those early D.C. United teams played, let's say, Toronto FC from last year or Atlanta United from this year, how do you think they would stack I up? Think, I think that they would be competitive. Also keep in mind that the, that the league has expanded and, and almost over, over, over double in size, I think, uh, when it comes to the amount of teams. So back then, while there were fewer teams, in essence, they were, they were stronger because there were, because there were fewer. And, and we, we certainly had bad teams too, just like anything else, but it was all relative to 10 teams as opposed to 20, 23 and, and moving on to, 20, uh, to 24. But w- when it comes to the MLS fan, and I consider myself a, a, an MLS fan, uh, and I mentioned something in the State of the Union about this, this sensitivity that we have. And, it, and, it, and it's not, it also is a bigger conversation when it comes to the American fan. I think we are very sensitive to both internal and external criticism that comes. And it's just, it comes from, I think, decades and decades of, uh, of being criticized. And some of it fair, some of it, some of it unfair. When I, when I talk to you about MLS, uh, it's not that this glazed look comes over your eyes, but when it comes to Major League Soccer, I recognize that if you had to pick leagues to watch, Major League Soccer would not be uh, on top of your list. I think you have it, like I said, uh, as others do, in, in your palate. But if, for example, you weren't at Fox and really had nothing to do with MLS from a working perspective, I'm not sure that this is a league that you would follow or care about. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Uh, I probably wouldn't. It's a combination of, you know, I think there are other leagues that are, that are frankly, better in terms of quality. So I gravitate to what I think are the top leagues with the best players in the world. And also, because it hasn't been around that long, it doesn't have that tradition of the other leagues. So, yeah, I think it's fighting an uphill battle in that regard. I think that's fair. All right. Well, you think it's uh, you think it's fair when it comes to Major League Soccer and the criticisms that uh, that we have. And I've said wh- whether it's coming from me or or anybody internally or externally, there are some legitimate and fair criticisms. What are high on your list in terms of criticism? So if if you were Don Garber for a day and you could with with a waving of a wand do, change some things, and I mentioned a bunch of them in the State of the Union that are kind of evergreen that that come up for criticism, promotion, relegation, all that kind of stuff. What would what would be high on your list of things? It's funny, do? I was going to ask you the same question because oh, you really? said, uh, "Well, the league's not perfect," so I was going to ask you, well, "What's the one thing you would change?" But I'll go first. At times, I've been bothered by what I think is the excessive parity in MLS. You know, I, I understand. Uh, they want to go away from what we all consider to be a bit of a problem in Europe. And we're going to talk about the Super League in a little bit, uh, the top heaviness of European leagues and, and sort of model themselves around the NFL, which brands itself as a league where everybody has a chance from year right. to year. But, you know, I, I think at times you've gotten to a point here where, where nobody wins even 50% of its games. 
And it, there's just sort of a randomness of it that I think is, is just too much. So that, that's a criticism I've had of MLS. I think they've set up a system where I think it's created maybe too much parity. So that's something that I would maybe try to rectify. Although we, between Toronto last year, Atlanta United mm-hmm. this year, you're starting to move away from that. You're starting to see some teams that are going to that are starting to feel like dominant regular season teams. And so I, I think that's healthy. I think you need a balance there. But sure, the separation has started to happen much right. more so than in the, in the beginning, and it does doesn't violate it, but it. it it goes counter to what the league was set up as where it was designed to encourage, like you said, the parity. Because while you may think, uh, and, and it's completely legitimate to think that, uh, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're saying that parity is actually a, a problem for the league and something you would like less of. So you would like to have much more of the haves and the have-nots, much more of these super clubs at the high end, much more of these these teams that as many people hate as love, but we also know are going to dominate from uh, from a, a results perspective. You think that's a good thing? Yeah, some balance in there between what MLS has had and what you have in Europe, where I, th- I think it's too top-heavy. So if you could find sort of a happy medium there mm-hmm. where there's a structure in place where every organization feels like they, they have a chance to win, but invariably some organizations, if they do things right, can sort of rise to the top and dominate. I think that's sort of what you want. I, I felt like for a while there the league was trying to force this parity that – I don't know if it was completely natural. Well, the other thing that, you know, I talked about the sensitivity and sometimes overly sensitive nature of Major League Soccer fans. And it's something that that they will readily admit and we will readily admit. But the other part of it and the other side of it, and this is a much more positive side of it, is that they are down for the fight. They will fight you in terms of defending Major League Soccer. And not, not defending everything, because we've talked about the, the, the things out there that are worthy of, of argument. But I've also not given up, but I've, I do less and less of the actual fight between people. And I mentioned the Bonnie Raitt uh, song because it's, it's not come to my attention, but I've just finally realized that sometimes it's a waste of my time and resources to try to force somebody who, and many people just from an early age, uh, or just are dead set against liking something like this. And so I can't force you. I can give you all the stats. I can say why I think that this is great uh, and why I think that you should follow this. But ultimately, you're going to do what you're going to do. And I don't want to waste my time. And I think oftentimes we we spin our wheels. We waste time and valuable time and, and, and resources. But it doesn't mean that there aren't moments where you have to be that ambassador and you have to be evangelized. You have to evangelize for the league that you believe in, and every, and everybody does. We all know that Major League Soccer in the United States and in North America, because it is a North American league, suffers at, at certain times or, or is challenged at times because of this inevitable compare and contrast. Unlike many other leagues, certainly there, there, there can be some parallels, but this inevitable compare and contrast with other leagues in particular that are televising their leagues here, that recognize this market and are trying to access this market on a continual basis. And at times when that compare and contrast happens, MLS either on and off the field for different things doesn't measure up. At times it may, and you may not recognize it, and that's where I think that's where the fight is, and the good fight is if you're an MLS supporter. But the other thing is, is as I said before, we, uh, we at times, in order to grow, in order to evolve, in order to be a league that is on the level and is comparable to others, we have to understand that criticism is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it means that you've actually evolved and grown to a level where people 
care enough to criticize what you are doing. It doesn't mean you go out of the way to do it. And at times, all of us at different ways, uh, either through soccer or anything else, uh, have. Where do you see, because I know you, you said you wouldn't follow MLS if it wasn't kind of in your wheelhouse here and what we're doing, but you still follow it. And maybe you have a different perspective and even maybe even a better perspective than, than I do. Where do you see MLS going in the future? Do you ever see it achieving that, 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 that level of it is one, if not the great league in the world? Oh, absolutely. I think you there's do. definitely the potential Why? for that. Because what makes you so bullish? Because you I didn't think, hesitate at all. No, I, I think it has a tremendous selling point of I, I think people want to come to the United States. It's very appealing to, to live here. And so, yeah, I think it, as it gets better, I think it's it's going to become like an appealing destination. I absolutely think if they do things right and, and, and structure it the right way, I think down the road we could definitely get to a point where it's uh, it's frankly, you know, I did a Mossy Makes the Case a few weeks ago contrasting European and South American mm-hmm club football and the dynamic there. And I don't see that ever changing, frankly. I think we've just gone in a direction where European club football is just going to be far superior. With the United States, I think there is that actual upside there because it's something new and different and they could sort of crash the party, if you will, and challenge the dominance of the top European leagues. Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, But I also think that regardless of how popular MLS gets, the money that's involved, the great talent that's involved, the relevancy, which is a huge and important word that is a constant battle. Regardless of how successful Major League Soccer becomes, it is always going to be uniquely American and uniquely North American in the way that we do things. It's inevitable because of the unique and very, very different culture that it is that it was birthed in and that it is growing and that is growing. And that's not something necessarily to to fear. And it doesn't mean that it can't incorporate aspects from around the world. As a matter of fact, in a a great way, it can. But it's always going to be different. I don't think it's always going to suffer from that difference. And at times now, it probably does. It, It does. But I am equally bullish. I'm bullish about the way the last 20 plus years have gone. Uh, I'm bullish about the leadership in terms of the the people in charge of taking this forward. And, you know, for example, I just got, I got, I just came from LAX and I had a uh, talk with uh, Peter Vermes, a guy I've known a long time. He's a coach of Sporting Kansas City, which is a team for those that maybe don't know a whole lot about MLS, is a, is a team in Major League Soccer. And sitting down and talking to him and hearing him talk about not just his own team, but about the sport in 2018 and the way that it has touched uh, people in his community in Kansas City and how there are young players that grow up wanting to play for Sporting Kansas City. And it doesn't mean that within their palette, that palette they don't, they're not watching Cristiano Ronaldo or other teams from here, here or there, but it does mean that it is on their radar. And there's a whole generation now that will think about Major League Soccer in a completely different way that certainly you do, but also in a completely different way that I do. And that's... Uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, and, I, and I hope that that trend continues. I hope that that, uh, that steady progress uh, continues. And once again, I will, I will end it with this. It, it doesn't mean that MLS is perfect. It has got plenty of flaws that are easy to see, some that aren't so easy to see, but it is la cosa nostra. It is our thing, warts and all. And I'll end on this. Uh, my eyes glaze over when you talk about anything, so that's not a that's shot true. At all. That is true. I've found that uh, to be the case pretty much whenever we're talking about anything. But let's move on and talk about something else so your eyes can glaze over. Although 
you know, coming up, you're going to be very, very important to a segment that bears your name. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy makes the case. Mossy, uh, what case are you making this week to the people and to me? My case is that the global spotlight is on South America for a change. A few weeks ago, I did a Mossy Makes the Case about what I consider to be the enormous golf inequality between European and South American club football. And I said one of the main reasons is that European clubs buy the best South American players. Mm-hmm. That point was underlined by the most recent Barcelona-Real Madrid match. Barcelona won 5-1. All six goals were scored by South American players. Luis Suarez had a hat-trick. Barcelona's other goals were courtesy of Coutinho and Arturo Vidal, and Real Madrid's lone goal uh, came from Marcelo, and the best South American player, Lionel Messi, didn't even play. I stand by everything I said that day, and so given that golf and quality, and given the lack of star power in South America, it takes something truly special for South American club football to attract the eyes of the world, and we do have something special. The neutrals got their wish. It will be Boca Juniors against River Plate in the Copa Libertadores final, the first leg, November 10th at La Bombonera. The second leg, November 24th at the Monumental. I am not a neutral observer. I'm Brazilian, so I was rooting hard for Grêmio and Palmeiras. I'm disappointed we got this final. But even I can take a step back and recognize what a big deal this is. Boca River, in my opinion, is one of the top two club rivalries in the game, along with Barcelona and Real Madrid. For years at Fox, we rooted for a Barcelona-Real Madrid Champions League final. We never got it. And now our good friends at Fox Deportes get Boca River. I will be very curious to see the viewership numbers both in the United States and worldwide because I do think this is going to resonate worldwide. This is going to be a global spectacle. All right. So hold on a second here. We're going to talk about rival, uh, rivalries later on in the pod a little bit more. Yeah. But uh, I want to get back to something that you said uh, in, in terms of the, the gulf and the disparity of talent when it comes to, you said Europe versus South America, right? Yeah. So how much of this is just the romance of these two brands going up against each other? Uh, is it sacrilege to call them brands? Number one. And, and before you do that, just for people that maybe don't understand the circumstances and maybe a little bit of the history, can you give that to the folks? Because we, we, we try to be not everything to everybody, but as much to everybody as we possibly can. And I'll be quite honest, it's, I, it's not like I follow Argentinian soccer uh, or these teams on a, on a consistent weekly basis. Yeah, I mean, they're both based in Buenos Aires. This is a rivalry that goes back 100 years, and it's, it's certainly one of the most intense in the game. Uh, I've talked about how Boca's home stadium, La Bombonera, is. I mean, it's one of those things Bucket like list, b- yeah. before you die, you have to see a game there. So it, the, the passion, the intensity, the competitiveness that's going to be on display is going to be just remarkable. And you're right. It's more about that and the brand and the romance of it. Now, these are both good teams and good players, so it'll be pretty good quality, but it won't stack up to like Barcelona around Madrid. So you'll just have to go into it. Well, wait, it won't stack up in terms of the quality on the field? Right. There are saying? no Messi's running around. I mean, it's, it's but, not. But shouldn't there be future Messi's if this is the breeding ground for that Barcelona team of the future, right? Problem is there's these South American players starting to leave younger and younger. The model is starting to be you develop those players to sell them quickly and then you spend that money on buying pretty good players that are, you know, sort of a little bit older and and sort of that that seems to be the model. Well, it's it's interesting because we've just had a recent Clásico, La Liga Clásico, where the debate was has it lost its luster? Is it is it the same without a Messi and without a Ronaldo? But what you're saying is at least when it when it comes to this, the romance is still there, yeah. not because of you're going to see the highest quality on the field. You might, and it's not, look, it's not like these guys can't play. <laughs> Plenty of them can play, yeah. but it's it's about the history. It's about right. the tradition. It's about the rivalry much more so 
than about the individual skill of the players or the, the collective skill of each of these teams. Yeah, no, absolutely. And bragging let, rights, right. obviously. Uh, let me go over some bookkeeping things. The Copa Libertadores in 2005 and 2006 had all Brazilian finals. In 2005, Sao Paulo played Atlético Paranaense. In 2006, Sao Paulo played Internacional. Those were very low-rated finals. The rest of the continent didn't care. So as a reaction to that, Conmebol introduced a rule that if two teams from the same country got to the semifinals, they had to play each other. They were trying to reduce the chance of a same country final. It still could have happened if like three teams from the same country got to the semis, but it certainly reduced the chances. Uh, a couple of years went the Copa Libertadores went, uh, underwent this major restructuring. They expanded the field. They changed the calendar. They added a preliminary round, made all these changes that got all the attention, but overlooked was the fact that they scrapped that rule. And boy, aren't they glad they did, because if that rule was still in effect, Boca and River would have had to play in the semifinals. And in this case, they were able to play in the final. Also, keep in mind, this is going to be the last two-legged Libertadores final because they've already decided starting next year they're going to one game. It's going to be held in Santiago, Chile. So if this had happened one year later, uh, this would be one match taking place in a neutral venue. So it's going to be interesting to see how different that's going to be. And finally, there are many more. Okay. There are many around the world. Arsene Wenger blazing over. Go ahead. Uh, There are many around the world, Arsene Wenger included, who are against the away goals rule. Right. And if you're against the away goals rule and you kind of want to see what football looks like without it, the Libertadores final is for you because in the Libertadores, there's away goals in every knockout round except the final. So, for instance, if Boca win 1-0 at La Bombonera, any one-goal River win in the second leg, 2-1, 3-2, 4-3, and we go to extra time. There's no away goals. Why just arbitrarily not in the final? What? what that it's was just... weird. It's like, oh, that's a weird way to decide a final, but it's okay to decide every— I mean, that's how River got to the final <laughs> against Gremio. So, uh, for, for years, um, we've talked—I uh, don't know how true it has been or anything like that— about the potential of North American teams participating in Copa Libertadores. One, would that be a good thing? Um, and two, do you, do you see it ever happening? I do see it happening. And yeah, in the long run, I think it would make them better. I mean, we talk about the U.S. national team participating in the Copa America and the benefits right. from that. So I think it'd be kind of the same thing here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and then my, uh, my last question to you would be, if one was a betting man or woman, uh, who would you bet on? I would lean Boca. Why? I think they have a better pedigree in the Libertadores. I know it's, you know... Uh, since they're used to facing each other, maybe you throw that out the window. But I don't know. I, I always, in this Libertadores context, kind of favor Boca. Now, speaking of eyes glazed over, I have one more right, longish right, rant. All right. I do want to address the Gremio River second leg and also give a little postscript to Brazil's involvement well, in Well, I know 2018. people are clamoring for you to do Hopefully so, so go have at it. Yeah. Okay, I don't think there's a conspiracy against Brazilian clubs. I honestly don't. But Grêmio did get completely screwed in that second leg. The issue is not the penalty at the end. That was a stone-cold penalty, a brilliant application of VAR. The issue is the first river goal. Uh, Rafael Santos Boré did a Maradona hand of God. He scored with his arm. That should have been ruled out. It wasn't even checked by VAR. So Grêmio have a gripe there. Also, keep in mind, Grêmio are a team that's normally pleasing on the eye. They were forced to adopt this negative approach because they were minus their best attacking players due to injury, including the reigning South American player of the year. If Luan and Everton had started both legs, they would have approached these games differently, and I think they would have won. I think they're a better team than River. They also lost their best midfielder to injury in the second leg, a center back, Paulo Miranda, was having a great game. It was his replacement that gave away the penalty at the end, so they were murdered by injuries in this tie. But Grêmio are an exception. They're the only Brazilian team I'm going to feel sorry for. The rest of them have no excuse. The way Brazilian clubs play in the Libertadores is 
is nauseating to me. They defend deep. They hoof the ball up the field. They can't string three passes together. They kick the crap out of the other team. Everything is about grinding out a result. And it, it's, it's unbecoming, especially when you consider the financial advantage that Brazilian clubs have. And lately, it's not producing results. In the last five editions of the Libertadores, Grêmio last year is the only team that's reached the final. So I think Brazilian football is in major need of a rethink. You know, the rest of the world is excited about this final. For Brazilians, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but they shouldn't be blaming referees. I mean, maybe Grêmio could, but I think you, you can feel sorry for Grêmio and still take a step back and realize in the big picture, there's an issue here that needs to be resolved. Brazilian clubs are really unperforming, underperforming in this competition. All right. When are the games? November 10th and November 24th. Wait, there's two weeks between the games. Yep, and they're on uh, Saturdays. Saturday games. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we will look forward to... I don't know. I don't want to speak for anybody out there, but maybe there's people out there that will look forward to to this encounter. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where the Ask Alexi hashtag is used, and you send in your questions and your comments, and then Mossy reads them. Pretty simple. Uh, And do use those when you're on Twitter or Facebook or any of the other platforms out there. Ask Alexi the hashtag. All right, what do the uh, people want to know this week, Mossy? First up, at AlexGoldstein87, I understand your bias, which is a good way to start a question, (laughs) but why would you say USA-Mexico is the best international rivalry in soccer? Over Argentina, Brazil, Germany, France, England, Argentina, let's be honest, USA and Mexico are not good teams. Okay. Well, we just established in the previous segment that they don't have to be good teams for it to be a great rivalry and to be a great spectacle, right? I have said this uh, over uh, over the years, and Alex, you're absolutely right in in your first phrase there about the fact that I am biased. Yes, you're you're damn right because, uh, and I can confirm this, I'm a human being, as are the other people in this room, uh, and certainly the other person that you are hearing, uh, despite. Uh, the incredible robotic mind at times that he has uh, of David Mossy. And therefore, it, it is subjective. Uh, there are no criteria. Uh, and if there are, you get to make it up yourself, as I do. And so when I look at the U.S.-Mexico rivalry, that certainly now, maybe when it started, maybe when I was a part of it many, many years ago, wasn't as competitive as it is now, is competitive. Uh, you never know who is going to win. Tradition says you win your home games, you lose your uh, your away games, but that tradition has been bucked. And so this is a rivalry that is steeped in competition between two very evenly matched teams, number one. Uh, number two, uh, any type of rivalry, I think, extends beyond the actual field. The climate that we are in The global climate that we are in, I think that there is a recognition certainly between these two countries and in the area that we are in, but there's also a recognition and an interest and a relevancy uh, from around the world when it comes to the relationship, at times the strained relationship, and that feeds into the narrative and that feeds into the excitement, the entertainment value, the heat, if you will, that is is between these, uh, these two teams. Once again, because I'm biased and because I readily admit that I'm human being, I am biased, I bring my baggage, I bring my history. This is why I look at that rivalry and say that this is the best in soccer. You can have your opinion and you can say something else is the best and it will be based on your experiences and your history and yes, your your biases. Uh, when it comes to a U.S.-Mexico game, it is something that you, you were talking earlier about bucket list. When it comes to American fans in particular, the bucket list of going to a U.S.-Mexico qualifier and what it means to go to that game. Uh, and in particular, when it means to go to that game in Columbus 
and to have that experience that goes even beyond the actual result on the field, but to say, I went there. I was there when this happened. I was there uh, to see a classic matchup. And it gets back to what we talked in the previous segment about the romance of these two teams that really has nothing to do when it really comes down to it with the names and the players that are playing, but it's these two, these two teams. And that's why I feel from my perspective, and I will raise my hand and admit that your perspective might be very, very different. That's why I think that it is the greatest rivalry in, uh, in soccer, and that's why I said it. But you can have your opinion, you can have your criteria, you can have your experiences, and you can definitely have your biases. What about you? Who do you th- what do you think is the, the greatest one in, uh, in the world? If it's, let's just say international, so national teams. Yeah, I mean, I would say Argentina, Argentina Brazil. Brazil, right? Yeah, but that's your that, that's no, but that's your frame of reference. That's but I, yeah, but I agree with your larger point that rivalries it, it's it's less about the quality of the teams; it's more about the, the intensity, the passion of it. And you know, they, like Celtic Rangers, I would rank very high on the best club rivalries, and I think Scottish football is dreadful. But it's just the significance, the, the whole religious component, you know. So yeah, you you can argue a rivalry being above another one with arguably two better teams ba- on the basis sure. of you think it's more meaningful sure. can, to those you countries. Can, you can look at every seven, one of the seven wonders of the world and go find something that you believe is yeah. that much more incredible. I, I will say, I mean, there are people on Twitter that were just getting over your Greg Berhalter over Pep and they're like, oh, let me give this guy another chance. Now they're going to see U.S.-Mexico <laughs> over Brazil-Argentina. All right. Uh, okay. All right. All right, next up, at Invader underscore Zim14. He never actually mentions the word manager here, but I assume that's what he's alluding to. Mm -hmm. Who will they choose, and when will U.S. men's national team make a decision? So the prevailing wisdom, and I have no reason to believe that this will not be what's happening, is that uh, Ernie Stewart and the powers that be over at the United States men's uh, national team headquarters, U.S. soccer, will will choose Greg Berhalter. And the only reason that I say that, and, and once again, I have no inside information, but the amount of people that have said this leads me to believe that usually what happens is if something is floated out there, that is completely wrong, especially a big thing like this. Well, Greg, Greg Berhalter's camp may want that to be out there because it makes them look good. Eventually, somebody finds a way to get to those that are saying it and say, hey, you're barking up the wrong tree. This is this is not something that's happened. And I haven't seen any of that. And I haven't seen any abating at all of the Greg Berhalter for the U.S. men's national team. So it would surprise me if somebody else wasn't there. But stranger things have happened. They talked about this November 1st deadline. And to be fair, because I talked to Ernie Stewart a number of times over the last couple of months, this was a date that they were targeting. You're not going to hold him that they were going to just wake up on November 1st and say this is who the coach is. And if it is Greg Berhalter, not for nothing, but his team's still playing in MLS. And so if they did want to wait until that was done, it's not done yet. <laughs> and so uh, until the Columbus crew, which Greg Berhalter coaches right now, is out of it, uh, we're going to have to continue to wait. It was interesting, and I don't know if you saw it, but Tata Martino, who had been rumored as a possible candidate for U.S. soccer, and then the whole talk and discussion about was it right, and we've talked about this on the pod, uh, to hire or, or to have the stipulation that the head coach should speak English. Now, Tata understands probably a whole lot more than he lets on. Is Speaking of English is, is not very good, but he did do an interview uh, this weekend uh, during MLS playoffs where I'm sure that it was on purpose and strategic in that he answered the question in English. Fragmented English, but 
albeit, but certainly English. And I think, as I said before, he understands a whole lot more than he lets on. And the interesting thing there is that Columbus and Atlanta could meet in the playoffs. I know, that would right? be Greg Berhalter against Tata Martino, who then we all think are going to meet when the U.S. plays Mexico. And to bring it all the way back around to Boca River, there's a lot of talk about Scalotto replacing Tata Martino with Atlanta, although I think, frankly, both him and Gallardo should be strong candidates for Argentina. But, you know, we'll see how it all plays out. All right, what else? Finally, at Matt English. Hey, Alexi! Exclamation point. It's always uh, a good start. I think Elaine Bennett. My name right. Uh, uh, who are your top three midfielders in the Premier League? Oh, uh, top three midfielders in the Premier League. All right. So let's see. Is this a, this isn't a league necessarily that is that is renowned and known for midfielders, is it? But I will give you three. Alex over here is going to be happy. Golo Kante. Okay. I think that there are any team in the world would be. Very lucky to have the type of player that he is. I think he can fit in uh, to any team, and he does all of the dirty work that others don't want to do, but more importantly, others can't do. So there's there's one, David Silva from uh, Man City, right? Left-footed wonder, a guy who I think you can build any team around, a guy that when he gets the ball, everybody sits up in their seat because the potential for him to do something magic. And when I say magic, it's not, it's not the killer ball all the time. It's just the way he spins out of pressure, the way he controls the flow of the game, his confidence, his ability to both be provider and finisher. So that would be another one. And then while environment matters, I'm taking these players at times out of their environment and in doing so, maybe making them better. Paul Pobo. Okay. I know he gets criticized and at times rightfully so, but he's another one that I, that, well, it was proven over this summer, if put in the right type of situation, uh, can be the best player on the field, can be one of the greats of the game. And so, yeah, I would say those three. Are there other ones that I am just blatantly missing in terms of your, in your estimation? Well, a couple of things I would say. Chelsea's uh, system under Mauricio Sarri, it, it, a lot of people think it's sort of de-emphasized N'Golo Kante's importance a little bit in that Jorginho is now the most important player in that midfield. There, there was an influx of midfielders in the Premier League this season, and of, of the new ones that have come, Jorginho is the one I think you could really make a case for. Also, I really like Lucas Torreira at Arsenal. I assume Nabi Keita would be in this conversation, but he's had kind of a so-so start at Liverpool, partly due to injuries, right. and Fabinho and Fred have been a disaster at their respective clubs. Do you in consider term- like do you consider De Bruyne? A oh, no, no, I, I was about to. Say, okay. I, I, De Bruyne to me would be like the okay. number one okay. name on that list. I only thought maybe you left him out because he's been injured this yeah, whole year, why, so it's like why, out of sight, yes, out of mind. That's, why, that's exactly why. Um, and then, you know, another another guy I like a lot is Christian Eriksen. But again, he's been slowed by injuries and not had mm-hmm. a great start to this season. So, yeah, it's 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 a list that might be a little bit in flux. I would have said going into the season, I would have said definitely De Bruyne, Eriksen, Conte, and Pogba are the four best. And and there's, like, arguments right now against all of them just, you know, either because they're injured or, or in Conte's case, just the system isn't suited to him. Or is, is there an so, English one that stands out to you? Who's in that, who's in that Liverpool? Dele Alli. Yeah. You can't you, – you, 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 you throw people into the, the midfield. The word midfielder, are, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, it, what, it, throw, that's what I throws agree. me off it, here. The term midfielder is – could be, you know, like, like you know, Mesut Ozil is technically a midfielder, but there's, how do you contextualize what he does with what N'Golo Kante sure. does? It's hard to compare. So, yeah. So. And if people come out and say, yes, we're playing 
433 or something like that, we know that at times that those three up top sometimes don't go up and, and do go up and all kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, those are my those are my three. I'm sure you have your three out there. And as always, uh, let us know what you think and continue to use that Ask Alexi hashtag. And who knows, Moss, you may read one of your questions on future episodes of the State of the Union. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for the back three, that moment in the pile where we look at some big stories, games, moments that are making news around the world. And there was news around the world. And we're going to try to not get too much in the weeds, but to give you a, a primer and an understanding about these topics because they can very, very quickly become very, very confusing and uh, talk about glazing over, uh, as you <laughs> will see. Big theme in today's exactly. podcast. <laughs> All right, so what are we talking about here? All right, so Football Leaks have been busy. They are a website that gets its hands on these secret documents and then distributes them to news organizations, uh, Der Spiegel among them. And uh, there are two big scandals that have erupted in the football world as a result of some leaked documents uh, recently. So we'll take them one by one. First is uh, the fact that some top European clubs have held advanced talks about forming a Super League. The details are a bit murky, but what we know is it would begin in 2021. It would involve 16 clubs, 11 founding members that would be guaranteed membership for 20 years, and then five guest teams that could drop out through relegation. There would then be another group of teams that would right. fight for promotion into the Super League, and it would most likely mean the end of the Champions League, and it also would likely mean those teams exiting their domestic leagues. Uh, so I'll get to who the 16 teams are in a second because I think it's interesting, but what are your overall impressions of this story? My overall impressions are it warmed the cock of my heart to see this come out and to see the consternation as the soccer community at large and much of the soccer community that is screamed and yelled about some of the things we've talked already about uh, the uh, the criticism of let's say the structure of major league soccer or actually the structure of American sports to come out and to have what is essentially a closed system and to take all of these <laughs> you know all of these ways of thinking and put them into that as the future of European soccer that was fun that was fun for me to see while it was a email dump and so this came out I don't think there was any ever any accusation that anything that they did was illegal. There's nothing illegal about thinking of a better mousetrap. There's nothing illegal about thinking about your business and coming together with other businesses to create a super business. And so I, I'm intrigued. In the same way that we watch, you, you mentioned the Classico, we watch because of the romance, but we watch because of the teams that are playing. So if on a continual basis I can get that in my diet of the best teams in the world playing, that's that's something that that I want. Now, the other component of it, and you did, by the way, you did a really good job of explaining it. Well done, Mossy. Uh, the other component of it is how it will affect, if they were to leave, if your Bayern Munich left Bundesliga, what would the Bundesliga then be? Because that host is gone. And so now the 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 suckers, if you will, of that host have nothing to suck onto. But Maybe it makes those leagues that much better. If, if what you're telling me is true and the romance and the, the community aspect of a lot of these teams, as opposed to these super clubs, is so valuable and is, and is so strong, then maybe it brings us back to a time that people are, are dying to have. Now, what it means also is that those global brands, because even those smaller teams are striving to be global brands, it becomes that much more difficult for them to ever achieve that super club status. Yeah, that's what some people are arguing, that if you take these super clubs out of it, these domestic leagues will actually become more competitive, and everybody will feel like they have a chance to win. It'll be 
somewhat akin to the English football structure right now where you have the Premier League and then you have all these lower leagues where that are much more wide open. You, you don't know from season to season who's going to win them. And so, but there are others that say that it's going to essentially become like the relationship between like Major League Baseball and the minor leagues, that it's going to become something that's uh, nobody's going to really, uh, it's going to essentially become like feeder leagues for the super club. That's where they're going to stash their players and loan them out and that, that those leagues aren't going to have any juice to them minus those big clubs. So that's sort of the debate going on. Now, the, the 16 clubs that are involved, it's interesting, they are as follows. The, the 11 founding members, Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, then you have Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, AC Milan, PSG, and Bayern Munich. And then the five initial guests would be Dortmund, Marseille, Atletico Madrid, Roma, and Inter Milan. I would say the two big snubs from the big leagues would be Tottenham and Napoli. And then the, the one I thought was kind of curious is AC Milan being a founding member. Right. They're, they're kind of like Michigan football. Their prestige is completely disproportionate to what they've actually achieved on the field. They haven't been in the Champions League in five years, and yet they're still like considered one of the big boys. But Take, Taking aside the, the legal <laughs> considerations, because I, I think ultimately whether this happens or not, and I think it's still got a lot of hurdles to clear right. for this ever to happen. Taking aside the legal ramifications, because I think ultimately no matter what happens, lawyers are going to make a lot of money on all of this. Right. Do you think that these super clubs have any responsibility to either the leagues that they are in or maybe more importantly, the countries and cultures that they have played in and fostered over the years? Maybe that's a mo- much more of a moral responsibility than a contractual responsibility. Yeah, I mean, they, they are sort of abandoning their, their countries uh, in a way. That, that's an interesting way to look at it. It's, the funny thing is this season, these leagues are a lot more competitive. Right. We, we had reached the point where we're all like, yeah, was, something has to be done here. This is too top-heavy, and Bayern wins the Bundesliga by 20 points every year, and you know PSG and Juventus and Barcelona and Real Madrid tower over everybody else in Spain. And uh, ironically, this is all arising during a period where it's not like that. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's kind of funny, but... Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the soccer fan by nature is averse to change. They're traditionalists. And also, they hate elitism. You know, they, they, they hate this whole idea of a bunch of clubs going on and doing, you know, and, and especially this whole idea of, like, guaranteed membership for 20 years. So you knew the reaction was going to be negative. Sure, sure. I try to keep an open mind about these things. If it's done right, I, I, I don't know. I could be talked into it. Because, like I said, there's some value that, since these leagues are so top-heavy, let these clubs go and, and play amongst themselves. And then let's actually leave behind some competitive leagues. With, so, so, to me, it's an idea that's at least worthy of discussion. Now, Gab Marcotti, and we can end on this, he thinks this was all like a negotiating tool when they were negotiating their last wafer deal to get a bigger slice of the prize money, to get more spots, which they got all that. And so he's questioning whether this is still like an active thing that's being talked about, or maybe these documents make it seem like they're still talking about this, but it's just something they used as a negotiating mm, ploy interesting, during interesting. the last negotiation. So, well, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. Rumeniga, I mean, who's supposedly the guy like in the middle of all this, is completely denying it and said so it's it's ridiculous that no, nothing like this is going on. We have no intention of breaking from UEFA. And so, I don't know. We'll see how it do you all think it's, plays out. Do you think it would be, because I, you know, I said that my initial reaction was like, yeah, I want to I see that. Do you think it's too much of a good thing? Do you think it's gluttonous and that it would therefore suffer if every week, what makes it, what makes Champions League, for example, that good is that we have to wait first off until there's actually matchups that we care about. Not everybody, I know. I'm not speaking for everybody. But for the most part, do you think that if that was on... If you're eating cake every single week, are you going to get sick of cake? There's something to be said for that. That was Warren Barton's argument this week, and him and Kate Abdo got into a very Ooh. animated argument about the wow. Super League thing. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's it's the fun of it is looking at the schedule and saying like, oh, there's a big game coming up right. this weekend. If if those teams play each other all the time, you, you lose some of that luster, and it just becomes like the new normal. And, you know, so I mean, there, I, I suppose there's some argument to be made for that. Fascinating. Um, <laughs> okay, what else? 
All right, so the the second big More scandal leaks, right? that the second big scandal that erupted, uh, courtesy of football leaks, is this. So as you know, a few years ago, UEFA introduced these financial fair play rules, mm-hmm. which essentially stipulate that a, a club can only spend what it brings in in revenue. So they're trying to curb like these. Russian oligarchs or Arab sheiks from buying these clubs and spending a crazy amount of their own money and completely destabilizing the market. So UEFA created this panel that's supposed to review the books and determine like what's the actual market value of these sponsorship agreements to keep clubs from inflating how much they're getting from sponsors. And then if clubs are in violation, uh, they're supposed to dole out the punishment. So in the first year of financial fair play, PSG and Man City were in violation to like a scandalous degree. PSG had this deal, for example, with the Qatari Tourism Authority. They claim was for 200 million euros a year and UEFA evaluated the deal and determined that it was only for like 3 million euros a year. So a slight discrepancy there. Uh, And so UEFA, this panel was ready to lay the hammer down and expel them from the Champions League and all that. And then UEFA secretary, now FIFA president no, Johnny Infantino, stepped in and said, no, let's not do that. And he, he kind of went behind the panel's back, it sounds like, had some secret meetings with those clubs and kind of figured out a way to help them hide some of their irregularities and also gave them a slap on the wrist at the end, a 20 million euro fine. Right. So it, it, so people are all up in arms about that. Uh, does this bother you? Do you think that you know these, these, these clubs are like gaming the system, they're cheating? And uh, so, so I know this is a leak, but this is not a revelation. <laughs> because when this was was first proposed, the exact thing that everybody said was going to happen has happened, okay? <laughs> That's, I mean, even for people just on the surface that weren't even in the weeds, they said, this is how they're going to get around financial fair play. And they laid it out exactly the way that you talked about it in terms of getting sponsors and inflating the value. And, and so it, 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 it boggles my mind that, that this should be surprising to anyone. What it does bring up is an interesting point. And you know this gets back to what we talked about earlier. If something's illegal, then we can all say, no, that is wrong, and we're not condoning that, okay? What Johnny Infantino did or didn't do, that's something that's going to take some time to figure out. But if all of this is true, ultimately it comes down to the fact that someone like PSG or Man City, they cheated. So are we talking about asterisks now? Do you negate everything that that team has done because it has been shown that they cheated? And and while you know while the actual play on the game maybe necessarily wasn't affected, well maybe it was affected because of the amount of money that they were able to spend that then went on the field. It didn't play out this, the the same way for PSG that it played out for Man City. But if it's cheating, do you think that that uh, we should we should put be putting asterisks on Man City's titles? on the wins that they have had, on the way even that we look at Pep and we look at this team. If it's all ill-gotten gains, then what are we doing here? No, it's a great question and one that people are raising. Yeah, I mean, Infantino has come out and said, look, the point of financial fair play was never to punish these clubs. It was to work with them to try to negotiate agreements and help them sort of get back into financial solvency and to be in, in accordance with financial fair play. The problem is that they've been inconsistent with that. A few weeks ago, Ruben Kazan were banned from European competition for a year, and they're now up in arms saying, wait a minute, like we, we, we tried to get under financial fair play. We couldn't, so we got hammered for it. And apparently you were like helping these clubs 
get around it, which, you know, the, the comparison I made is like, it's that scene in Airplane where like you have like the terrorist with like machine guns just walking right through security and then some old lady and they <laughs> right. all jump in. Yeah. yeah, Ruben Kazan is the big issue. They're the ones destabilizing the... <laughs> so, I mean, the, the whole thing. So that's... And also, I mean, the magnitude of how much these clubs are in violation. And if you read the emails, the blatant disregard and contempt they had for the rules. It's not like they said, okay, you got us. Let's sit down and try to figure something out. It sounds like they really like flex their muscles and uh, PSG president got in there and said, look, you really want an issue with the Qatari government? Like, you better let us out of this or else. Well, you know, the kind of threats and like Infantino was sort of pressured into like doing what he did. So that that's a bad look it's, for UEFA. And, you know, and, it's, it's, and it's hard to put it back in. Once, once it's <laughs> out, once you've you created these these massive super clubs, with that comes incredible power. The Bundesliga needs Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich doesn't need the Bundesliga. So there is this power shift and, and power imbalance right now and incredible leverage for these teams. Now, I will say this about Johnny Infantino. Like I said, I don't know whether it was legal, whether it wa wasn't legal, but in your job, whether it's head of UEFA or whether it's head of the FIFA, your job is to do the things that you need to do and to work to try to make things better. So if these teams are massively punished and have problems, is that does that making it better? Maybe not. But if you're going to make the rules, you, you got to be able to follow them. And this gets back to the fact that while it was done to, to make sure that people didn't completely outspend what they were taking in. So financial responsibility to the in individual clubs. There's the recognition that without a real salary cap, because this isn't really a salary cap, it is some restrictions, which is, which is something new, but it isn't really a salary cap. But without a salary cap, it's hard to keep people. It's hard, it's hard to harness people and keep them from going and doing these things. And as you mentioned, when you read through these, these emails, it's, it's all right. These these rules have been implemented. How do we get around them? And that happens in every every in, in politics. That happens in life. That happens you know on taxes. And how do you get around them in a legal way is one thing. How do you get around them in an illegal way? That's where you're going to run into problems. So say it ain't so. Say it ain't so, Pep. Yeah, and the question now is, is there so much of a spotlight on this that they are going to feel the need to, like, hammer these clubs? You know, I mean, Real Madrid, they're, like, licking their chops because they think this might mean that PSG have to sell Neymar or Mbappe. I mean, even this past summer, the Madrid media was convinced that PSG were going to be in, in violation of financial fair play and that UEFA were going to void the Mbappe deal and make him go back to Monaco and then they were going to turn around and buy them. That was like a real thing for a few days in the Madrid media, like that was going to happen. And of course, the deadline they said it would happen by came and went and not in, you know, and so, but again, people are thinking that that's a, a real possibility. So we'll see, but I, I don't think so. I, I, you know, it sounds like Infantino has come out and denied us. He's trying to say that like th this whole leak is like com pum coming from people that don't like that he's reforming FIFA and cleaning up the game. And so they're trying to tarnish his reputation so it's a whole thing well i think the moral <laughs> of the story is that cheaters never prosper oh then maybe they do prosper and and the other moral of the story is think twice before you hit send on anything in life uh okay anything else monster that's it we got more we will end on this next weekend is der klassiker dortmund playing host to bayern munich uh, we will have it on our air a lot of excitement about this game dortmund actually extended their lead at the top of the table uh this past weekend they beat wolfsburg while bayern were held to a 1-1 draw by freiburg there's now a four-point gap separating these two teams a lot of people think if dortmund were to win this game and take it to seven then we can really start talking about them potentially winning the Bundesliga this season. We'll get into this, some specific lineup stuff, but what are your overall impressions going into this game? 
I do think that we have a race on our hands, which is a good thing. We were talking about the fact, and, and credit to uh, our colleague and friend, Jovan Karoski, who has called this uh, from the beginning, saying that he thought that Borussia Dortmund was going to compete. I'm not sure he... I think he thought that they were going to compete because they were going to be on the level of Bayern Munich. I don't think he anticipated, nor did many, that Bayern Munich was going to go through this this situation yet again. Keep in mind, they did it last year. And when all was said and done in June, Borussia Dortmund went through their, their struggles and Bayern Munich kicked on. Does this feel a little different this year, though, in terms of what they got and what they're doing here? It does to me, yeah. And, you know, the big question for us is Pulisic. Um, How I think this is going to play out is I think he's going to start this Champions League game against Atletico, which is sort of a big game, but not really. Because Dortmund won 4-0 when these two teams played two weeks ago, they're sort of playing with house money here. As long as they don't lose by four goals, they're going to come out of it still in first place on the head-to-head. They just need to then beat Bruges and Monaco again, and they would top the group. So I think Pulisic is going to start there, but then not start the Classico. That's sort of the pattern, it seems like, because he started the German Cup game, then not this weekend. So Lucy and Favre is kind of rotating, but if the pattern sort of you know continues here, I think that would mean... But if, if Dortmund went to the Champions League final and it was tomorrow, who do you think he's starting? Sancho or I think right now Pulisic. Pulisic. The interesting thing is they started the season playing a 4-3-3 with uh, Delaney, Witzel, and Dahoud in the midfield, and then Royce center forward, which was Philippe, but we knew it was eventually going to be Alcacer. And then that does only leave one spot for Sancho or Pulisic. Lately, he's gone to a more of a 4-2-3-1. With, he likes this Jacob Brun Larsen, who's, who's a winger too. So, mm-hmm. so now there is a spot for like uh, Royce and two other wingers and a center forward. It's just that he's picking Larsen ahead of Pulisic. So we make it all about Sancho. I don't know. I think we could start talking about Jacob Brun Larsen and should he be starting above Pulisic because that, that's a spot that Pulisic could maybe win and, and get himself in the starting lineup and not affect Sancho so much. So we'll see. It's going to be very interesting what he does. Bayern, you know, Niko Kovac, who knows? You know, he, they've had, they have the injury, a lot of injuries. Thiago, the latest one, he's out for this game. Uh, he, he started against Freiburg. Kimmich started in the base of that midfield, but I think it's going to be Javi Martinez. Uh, Kimmich will be back at right back instead of Rafinha. Uh, and you know Lewandowski will be at top, but you don't know much else beyond that. I mean, he's got to decide between Robin, Ribéry, Muller, James, Goretzka. Even Renato Sanchez has kind of put himself in the frame. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be very revealing if Niko Kovac has, like, the guts to sit out one of those veteran stars in a game like this and, and sort of what lineup he puts out. So I'm really looking forward to this game. So, uh, so last two questions about this uh, th- this interesting uh, dynamic going on here. Do you think that Niko Kovac makes it to the end of the year? No. Oh, wow. We need, we need, like, a sting, a, a, a <laughs> hot take sting. Just imagine that there's a, you know, whew, coming through here right now after that all right wow i think he makes it to the end of the you year. said two questions that was one uh that was one <laughs> uh what was the other one well and on you forgetting what you were gonna ask well, me. Not me forgetting uh, <laughs> it, 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 it happens i had a good time uh in uh, salt lake salt right? lake uh yeah so i uh, so we'll, we'll end on this and we always end uh thank you very much uh for that back three mossy that was uh that was interesting uh <laughs> nobody's eyes glazed over maybe, maybe they did but we went end with our one big uh thing from uh today's podcast and that goes back to major league soccer and look, I, I know that there are people that listen to this podcast that don't follow Major League Soccer or could care less about Major League Soccer. Uh, it is, as I said in my State of the Union, a part of my history, and it will forever be a part of who I am and have a place uh, in my heart. And as I said earlier on, it's, it's 
It's La Cosa Nostra. It is, it is our thing. I have seen this thing be born. One of the proudest moments of my life was getting on the plane and coming back in 1996 to be a part of it. Could I or the, uh, the architects of this league have anticipated that we would be here in 2018 and we would be looking at a league and a landscape, the likes of which did not exist well, even 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago? No, but it is because of you know the foresight uh, of a lot of people, people that had a belief and a faith in this game and what it can be. And I will be, I will be proud of that. And I will, I will defend it. I will defend it warts and all. And that maybe goes back to something that we, we also talked about here about the romanticism. And I know often on this pod, I, ta- I, I, I come off as someone who, who will fall on the side of business. Uh, this is, to a certain extent, a, a labor of love for me. This is, in the way that some people talk about the EPL, in the way that you might talk about your Brazilian league and stuff like that, that's how I feel, that's how I talk about Major League Soccer. Not always, and I always you know, have different perspectives when it comes to the business of soccer. But one of the reasons why is because of the fans and because of the Major League Soccer fan. And as I said at the beginning, it is a, it is a really interesting, a strange, and a wonderful animal, the, the MLS fan. And without it, this league is nothing. They are educated. They understand the history. They are passionate about it. And they wear their heart on their sleeve, and they recognize the differences and the challenges that we have are ultimately what make it special and make it unique. And it is a very unique league. This is not me telling you that you have to watch Major League Soccer because as I said, I, I, can't, I can't force you and I can't tell you to do it. I'm just telling you why I love something. And at times I am accused of being loveless uh, or being devoid of emotion uh, or at times being avoid, uh, devoid of passion and falling on the side of business and falling on the side of metrics and falling on the side of, um, uh, on the corporate side. I'm here to tell you that there is a romance that lives inside of me. And a lot of times it pertains to this league that I was fortunate and privileged enough to be a part of from the beginning. That I get to continue to talk about it, that I get to continue to, to be a part of it many, many years after I kicked a ball in it is also a privilege and a, uh, and a pleasure. And I look forward to many, many years in the future of seeing this grow into what uh, you so eloquently put and we're so bullish about into something that rivals not just the other sports and the other leagues in the United States, but the other soccer leagues that we in- inevitably will compare and contrast ourselves for many, many years to come. And I look forward to the day when not just the people that love MLS, but everybody recognizes at the very least respects the fact uh, that this is something special and something to be celebrated. Mossy, anything before we head out? Well, I've been teasing it for two weeks, so I am going to get it in. And Alex Dowd, you're going to leave it in the here podcast. Here it comes. Here it okay. comes. Here, here's my quick making a murderer take. Yes. All right. If you remove the Brendan Dassey confession, I would 100% think that Stephen Avery is innocent and got framed uh, because I went back and watched the very first episode of Making a Murder mm-hmm. again. That conviction in 1985 was a disgrace. He got completely framed in that trial. They knew he, that wasn't just a mistake. They knew he was innocent. They ignored evidence that proved he was innocent. 
and, and still they put him in jail for 32 years. And the fact that he got out was a huge embarrassment to them. And then he was suing them for $36 million. And then mm-hmm. when you think about some of the shady things that occurred in the murder trial, it's not that big a stretch to think they could have tried to frame him again. But that confession does bother me. While I, I do think it's a bit uncomfortable to watch a, a young person with clearly with some mental problems, I'm not somebody that can completely dismiss that confession and say that it was totally coerced. Like I, I would view that. And to me, it is kind of significant that the detail that he gives to the crime and all that. Did you like the first season better or the second season better? I liked the first season better, but I didn't have as big an issue with the second season as a lot of people did. I, I was still glad. I'm still glad they did it. I, w- I was glad to be back in that world. I, I was. I thought it was compelling enough. Do you think that a viewer would enjoy just watching the second season? No, I think you kind of need yeah. that backstory. Like, that's why last week. That's why I said when my wife was asking me about it, I said, "No, you you can't do this. You have to go back and watch right. the first season to really appreciate the second season." Bottom line, though, I, I don't see this guy getting out. You know, I, I, lawyers have this like naive faith in the judicial system. Like lawyer Kathleen Zellner is on there talking about, well, the evidence is clear, and of course, when the judge or jury takes a look at this, they're going to let him out. Like, how much proof do you need? that they, they don't like this guy, they want to keep him in jail. And also, do you really think jurors in Wisconsin are going to understand blood splatter evidence and all this, like, wow. really in-the-weed scientific stuff? Well, that's how we should end the pod, then, on, uh, on <laughs> no, blood or, splatter. Or, or, or but, jurors anywhere. I mean, you, you told me when you were watching it, you were struggling to keep up with everything. Yeah, yeah, that you, I yes. mean, it, it's it's too in-the-weeds. I mean, it's so, I mean, it's... It just doesn't augur well for All Mr. Right. Well, <laughs> speaking of in the weeds and, and glazing over, uh, thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of the uh, State of the <laughs> Union podcast. We hope that there's something that you can grasp onto that was that was relevant to you. We try to do that. We try to uh, bring as many people into the tent as possible on a weekly basis. Thank you so much uh, for listening. We really do appreciate it. Uh, as always, send us your comments, questions, and concerns with that Ask Alexi hashtag about anything. Could be soccer, could be making a murder, or it could be what Mossy's wearing or what he's uh, what he's talking about. Uh, and we will see you again next week for another edition of the State of the Union podcast. All right, size the day. <laughs> <laughs>